when I was in middle school, being good at math was cool. One of the ways my educators promoted the, the coolness of math was by promoting competition. Every year, there was a big competition between the schools in my county called Math Field Day. And you, if you could perform well enough on the Math Field Day test, could have a chance to become a Math Field Day legend. I remember our teachers uh, telling us of brilliant pupils they had had in the past, those who had gone before us, the Michael Jordan of Math Field Day. One Math Field Day legend sticks out to me in particular, though. In fact, he's the only one I remember, and ironically enough, I don't remember his name. Just his story. He was the only one to ever score a 100% on the Math Field Day test. But something was amiss and became obvious after a while. As our best and brightest educators worked with him, they came to the conclusion that he was not the best and brightest of students. I mean, sure, he was, he was intelligent enough, but... He was less than mediocre with numbers, let's say. And after some investigating, they discovered that he had simply filled out the test, Abba Kadaba, over and over. He's trying to use magic, and it worked. Against all odds, his answers mirrored the answer sheet, thus giving him the 100%. The, the test was flawed in that way. Tests are meant to reveal something. They're meant to show us the quality of something. So maybe you think of uh, if you get your battery for your car tested, you want to see if it's going to have enough juice to turn the engine over or not. So the battery's good or bad. Or maybe uh, some of you are like really been spiritual this week. You've been reading your Bibles and you're going, you know what? I, this reminds me of when Jesus tests the rich young ruler. Right? You guys remember Rich Young Ruler? And I always say he's probably handsome too because it's hard to be rich and young and not be handsome, right? And so uh, Rich Young Ruler comes to Jesus and he asks this great question. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus has a little back and forth with him. But then he gives him this test, this test question. He says, one thing you lack, sell everything, give to the poor, and follow me. And if you remember the story, the rich young ruler goes away sad. Jesus' tests revealed the quality of the rich young ruler's faith that revealed his heart. Likewise, this morning, we come to a chapter in Genesis that is all about a test. We come to Genesis chapter 22, where we see that Abraham, the great father of faith, will have his faith tested in a most extraordinary way. And what we'll learn from Abraham as he indeed passes this test is that when God is your everything, you can face anything. When God is utmost in your affections, when God is really God in your life, you can endure any test, any trial, any hardship. Because when you've got God, you've got all you need. I'm going to exhort you this morning to behave like you believe in the God who provides. Behave like you believe 
in the God who raises the dead. Behave like you believe in a God who is all-powerful, sovereign, and sufficient for you. We're going to work through the text in two parts. We're going to see Abraham's faith revealed this morning through this test, and we're also going to get a picture of God's character. Let's pray, and then we will get started together this morning. Father, thank you for another opportunity to gather together and worship. Another opportunity to feel your presence, to honor you in obedience. Another opportunity to come and hear your word proclaimed, to be shaped and changed by it. We ask now that you would allow me to preach a better sermon than I prepared, and that you would allow us to hear a better sermon than I preach. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Teach us this morning. Speak so that we might hear. God, thank you for this text. Help us to learn to delight in you as a result of learning it. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Genesis chapter 22, starting with verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham. And then he said to him, Abraham, here am I, Abraham answered. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. This command must have fallen on Abraham's ears like an explosion. Must have left, left his ears ringing and him in confusion. Sacrifice Isaac? He's the, he's the child of promise, God. If this were a movie, right after God's words came to Abraham, he would have a flashback sequence. And so that's actually what we're going to do in the text. We're going to flash back a little bit to understand just what it is God is asking Abraham to do. And so, we're going to go back to chapter 12, where God first calls Abraham. Chapter 12, starting in verse 1, The Lord said to Abram, he hasn't even renamed him Abraham yet, The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. God tells Abraham to leave everything he's ever known, to leave his family and his land, and the result will be blessing. Abraham believes, and he leaves his homeland. He obeys God. In chapter 15, we find Abraham is a little concerned about these blessings that are supposed to come to him. We read this in verse 1 through 6. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. 
Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me? Since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Look, you've given me no offspring. So this slave who was born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to Abram. This one shall not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. And God took Abraham outside and said, Look at the sky. Count the stars, if you're able to count them. And then he said, Your offspring will be that numerous. Abraham believed God and he credited it to him as righteousness. God comes to Abraham when Abraham is concerned about God keeping his promises. He says, I don't have an heir, I don't have any children. And God comes to him and says, you're going to have children and they are going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Get to counting. More time passes We find God coming again to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, starting with verse 15. God said to Abraham, As for your wife Sarai, do not call her Sarai, for Sarah will be her name. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will produce nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down, and he laughed. Can a child be born to a hundred-year-old man? Can Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, give birth? So Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael were acceptable to you. You see, Abraham, it's been taking God a while to fulfill his promises, and so Abraham slept with Sarah's uh, servant, Hagar, and had a son named Ishmael. He's trying to make God's promises um, come to fulfillment on his own, apart from God. But God won't have that. God says to him in verse 19, No, your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will name him Isaac. I will confirm my covenant with him as a permanent covenant for his future offspring. Abraham is told, No, I'm going to accomplish my will. I'm going to keep my promises to you. Sarah is going to bear a child in her 90s, and you're going to name him Isaac. And, and Abraham laughs. And Sarah laughs too in the next chapter, 18, uh, verse 10. The Lord said, he's speaking to Abraham, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time, and your wife Sarah will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years. Old and getting older. And Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. So she laughed to herself. After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have delight? But the Lord asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come back to you, and in about a year, she will have a son. So God has made a promise to Abraham, and it is taking a really, really long time for that promise to come to fruition. Abraham has waited and waited and waited. Sarah has waited and waited and waited, and still she has no children. She is barren into her 90s. Abraham is pushing 100. 
He's tried to make God's promises come about with Ishmael. It hasn't worked. They've been waiting and waiting and waiting. And now, in chapter 21, finally, God keeps his promise. Beginning of chapter 21, verse 1, The Lord came to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. She became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the appointed time, God had told him. Abraham named his son, who was, to born, who was born to him, the one Sarah bore, Isaac. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and everyone who hears will laugh with me. So she also said, who would have told Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne a son for him in his old age. They laugh at God with unbelieving hearts, and then they laugh with joy as God keeps his promise. And Isaac has is, got all of God's promises wrapped up in himself. God's promises are embodied in Isaac. All the promises God has made to Abraham are contingent upon Isaac living, getting married, and producing children. This is God's great blessing to Abraham. Descendants spread across the earth. So when God comes to him and says, Abraham, take your son, your only son. He says your only son here because Ishmael was the product of an extramarital relationship. And in chapter 21, God has had him send away Hagar and Ishmael. God only recognizes Abraham as having one unique son. There's only one child of promise. All the promises rest on Isaac. He says, take your only son, Isaac, whom you love, go to Moriah and sacrifice him. When God says that, it's as if he's saying to Abraham, I'm taking all of my promises away. Life can change in a moment. Just one phone call. Just one accident. Just one diagnosis. And all at once, you can find yourself in the valley of the shadow of death, overwhelmed by the winds and rains of a storm. All at once, you can find that your test, your faith is being tested. And this is where Abraham finds himself. God seems to be taking his promises away. How will Abraham respond? How will you respond when testing comes? Abraham, well, he, he behaves like he believes in God. Verse 3. So Abraham got up early in the morning saddled his donkey and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. Abraham doesn't hit the snooze. He doesn't sleep in. He doesn't pull the sheets over his head and try to avoid this task that God has called him to. He gets up early, early in the morning. He sets out alarm for like 4.30. 
He gets up, he chops the wood that he's going to need. He gets his servants rounded up. He gets his son and he says, we are going to Moriah to sacrifice to God. Abraham's immediate obedience is to be awed at and to be emulated. It's not in the text, but I believe that Abraham had decided in his heart that he would obey God no matter what God asked. That he said, if God asks me to do anything, the answer is yes, because God is the one asking. I'm all in. What he knows of God, he says, this is a God I can trust. This is a God I love. I will do what he says. And I'll do it immediately. I won't delay. Abraham's test is, is extraordinary. But I couldn't, couldn't help but going, you know what? More often than not, the tests we face in life are ordinary. And they happen every day. So for instance, children, will you obey your parents immediately when they ask you to do something? This, I know, this honors God. The way you honor God is by Obeying your parents. So when God tells you to do something, one of the ways you can, you can do it and, and honor God as an act of worship is listening to your parents. Parents, do you teach your children with patience? Do you tell them about the love of God? This is a way you honor God. This is a command you've been given by God. Married couples, you love one another sacrificially. You're considering one another's interests ahead of your own. You honor God in this. Christian, are you committed to the regular gathering together with the local church to worship God? Are you quick to forgive as you've been forgiven? Are you quick to repent and ask for forgiveness when you're wrong? This is how you are to honor God. Church, are you committed to loving one another like Jesus commands? These are all small, ordinary tests that happen each and every day of your life. And they are revealing something about your heart. They're revealing something about your relationship with God. How are you doing? I think we would all do better if we prepared for these ordinary tests as well as the extraordinary tests by resolving in our hearts to obey God no matter what, to trust God no matter what, to already have our yes on the table. Say, if God asks me to do something, if he asks me to endure a hardship, whatever God brings into my life, I've resolved to say yes. Because he is a God that can be trusted. He is the God who provides. Is your yes to God on the table? Or are you clinging to something else something else more important to you than what God would have of you. I don't know if you guys are like me, have you ever had that dream where you wake up and you're in a classroom, it's typically a college classroom, and you look around and you don't recognize any of the people or the teacher, and you just on the chalkboard in the back is written like, you know, final today, you're taking a final, and you're trying to remember, and you're like, 
I've never been to this class, not once, but the final is here, and I am going to fail it. Like, and then you look down and you realize you're naked, and it just keeps getting worse. I mean, it might just be me. It's getting a little awkward if it is just me. But if you've ever had that dream, there is a terror that comes over you because you have not prepared for the exam. Friends, when testing comes to us, in the ordinary and in the extraordinary, we don't want to be, we don't want to be caught like we get caught in those dreams. We want to be prepared and resolved to obey God no matter what. So that when the test comes, we, we're confident. Yeah, I'm ready to prove my mettle. I'm ready to prove my faith is in you alone, God. That's exactly what Abraham is doing. That's really what this whole passage is about, is God demonstrating to Abraham, Abraham demonstrating to God that he fears him that his faith is in him. If you look in verse 12, the second half of it, it tells us, God says, for now I know that you fear God. That's the, point of the, that's the point of this testing of Abraham. Like Abraham doesn't know he's being tested, but he is. And it's to show that he really does fear God. He really does love God above all else. That he's willing to do anything in obedience to this God. They're really similar uh, to Job. I don't know if you're familiar, but in Job chapter 1, Satan comes to God, and this is, this is what happens. I'll just read it to you. Starting with verse 6 of Job chapter 1. One day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And the Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered, from roaming through the earth and walking around on it, from going to and fro. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household, and everything he owns? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand against him. Strike everything he owns, and he will surely curse you to your face. Very well, the Lord told Satan. Everything he owns is in your power. However, do not lay a hand on Job himself. And so Satan left the Lord's presence. This, this dialogue between Satan and God is really revealing. God is saying, my servant Job loves me. He fears me. He's turned from evil. And Satan says, yeah, that's just because you've given him a whole lot of stuff. He has everything he wants. He lives in a, a life of luxury. You know, he's eating filet mignon every night. He's got a bunch of camels and kids. Of course he loves you. He's a gold digger. But take away that stuff, he'll curse you to your face. He doesn't love you, God. He loves your blessing. And so, so God, and I'm paraphrasing, he says, okay, Satan, do your worst. We will see if Job truly loves me. And if you know the story, Job loses everything. Children are killed. His wealth is destroyed. He comes to the end of himself. But he never turns on God. He never curses God like Satan thought. In fact, his words have been immortalized in that first chapter. 
And they capture his disposition throughout the whole trial and testing. Verse 20 of chapter 1, just after the report of his children's death has come to him. Job stood up, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground, and worshipped. And worshipped. And worshipped. Saying, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Throughout all this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. Really similar things happening with Abraham. He's being tested to see if he fears and loves God above all else. The genuineness of his faith is going to be revealed in this testing. And his response is the same as Job's. Though we see it more through the lens of his steadfast obedience. He, in the face of difficulty, in the face of this hard obedience, resolves to worship God. How? How can Job say, blessed be the name of the Lord, after losing all? How can Abraham, in the face of this command to sacrifice his son, to sacrifice all the promises and blessing of God, how can he obey? How can he worship? When God is your everything, you can face anything. Even losing everything. So you still might go, but why, why does the test have to take place here? Like, doesn't, doesn't God already know that Abraham's faith is true? But friends, you know there is a difference between knowing something cognitively and knowing it experientially. There's a difference between knowing something theoretically and knowing it practically. There's a difference between saying, I love you, and saying, I do. And God is saying to Abraham in this particular instance, prove your love to me. And Abraham, having confessed his love for God, resolves to put skin on that confession by obeying. And so Abraham begins to animate his love for our Lord. Verse 4. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand he took fire and the knife. And the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to his father. My father? And Abraham replied, here, here I am, my son. And Isaac said, the fire and the wood are here. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them 
walked on together. When they arrived at the place that God had told Abraham about, he built an altar and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar, on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. As Abraham raises that knife to sacrifice Isaac, to put an end to the promises of God in obedience to God, as he raises that knife, memories must have flashed across his mind. Memories of God taking him out underneath the night sky and telling him to count the stars. And him going out each night after that, counting each one until the sun rose up to chase the darkness away. Memories of laughing at God's promise. Memories of that laughter turning into joy. Memories of of holding his baby in his arms. The promised son. Memories of singing to his son. Memories of kissing his son. Memories of delighting in his son. Memories of his son's first steps. Memories of his son's step each day for the past three days. Memories of his son's question ringing in his ear. Where is the sacrifice, Father? Memories of his own answer. God will provide a sacrifice. All in his hand, as he, in his head as he raises the knife and resolves to bring it down with deadly force. Knife in the air, ready to come down. All at once, his wrist is grabbed by the voice of God. Abraham, Abraham, don't lay a hand on the boy. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named that place, The Lord Will Provide. So today it is said, It will be provided on the Lord's mountain. God shows up and provides for Abraham. What's going on here? There's a bunch going on here. But one of the things we must recognize at this point is Yahweh, the God of Abraham, is distinguishing himself from the pagan gods that surrounded Abraham. You see, it was very typical of these pagan gods to require child sacrifice as a provision to them. But God, in this test of Abraham, is accomplishing a couple things. He's demonstrating that that Abraham is just as devoted to him as those pagans are devoted to their false gods. And he's making a really loud announcement. I am not like that. You see, I'm not the kind of God that requires you to provide for me. I'm the kind of God who provides for you. He provides a ram in Isaac's place. 
Verse 15, then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, this is the Lord's declaration. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars and and the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. I love this. God reiterates and magnifies the promise he's already made to Abraham. Verse 17 so good. He says, I will indeed bless you. We could render it this way. Now I'm really going to bless you. Like this is God's posture towards us. Not only does he want to provide to us, provide for us in response to faith, he also wants to really, really bless us. I love that. Some folks have trouble with this passage. Sometimes it'll say, um, you know, there's something wrong with this God that he would require this of Abraham. But the truth is, instead of walking away questioning God's character, we should walk away marveling at it. Because God has every right to request Isaac as a sacrifice. Isaac is a sinner just like each one of us. The wages of sin is death. God is a just judge. He has the right to take life from anyone, anywhere, at any time he wishes, in any manner he wishes. And he's perfectly righteous in doing so. But he resolves not to take Isaac's life in order to illustrate his love for us. He's showing us in his redemption of Isaac our own redemption. He redeems Isaac, he saves Isaac from death by means of substitution. A ram is offered in the place of Isaac. The Lord will provide. Now we're getting to the good part. Now we start to get a glimpse of Christmas and of the cross. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world was not born to a barren woman like Isaac, but to a virgin girl like no one else. Jesus, the ultimate son of promise, the one in whom every promise of God finds its yes, he's going to come onto the scene. Like Isaac, he will have wood placed upon his back as he heads to the place of sacrifice place of the skull. Like Abraham, the the father will hold the fire and the knife in his hands. But here's, here's the scandal. Isaac is saved, but Jesus, the God of Isaac, dies. A ram is offered in Isaac's place, but Jesus has no substitute. Jesus must bleed. Jesus must die for sinners like us to have peace with God. 
There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. When this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. Jesus comes and dies for us so that we might have peace with God. He dies for our sin in our place. He raises for our justification so that we can know God loves us. God resolves to make his love known for us by not withholding from us his only begotten son. God says, I love you. And then he puts skin on that confession by showing up in the person of Jesus Christ. So we have a God who provides for our sin and in providing for our sin, in reconciling us to himself, he makes his love perfectly evident. He, he makes sure that we know him not just cognitively or theoretically, but practically, experientially. He animates his love for us on the cross. Friends, this is a God that you can trust. This is the God who rules and reigns over everything. This is a God who provides for those who have faith. When you know this God, nothing can touch you. Because when you know this God, you have everything. He is everything. You, you turn from your sin and, and you take up your cross and put your faith in this, this God, you are never going to be sorry. Never going to regret that decision. Nothing but joy there for you. Friends, we need to start behaving like we believe in the God of the Bible. We don't need to live like we're dying. I think that was a country song. We need to live like we're not dying because our hope is in Christ who is raised and seated at the right hand of God, ruling forevermore. His, his tomb is empty, his throne is occupied, and he has said that those who have faith in him will be raised to life like him. That's good news. That's news that enables you to face anything this life can throw at you. Friends, when God is your everything, you can face anything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your grace is greater than all our sin and that you show your love to us in so many ways. But most brightly, we see your love for us 
when we turn our eyes to the blood of Christ. You loved us enough to die for us. Jesus, you came and lived the life we were supposed to live and died the death we were supposed to die. And you've been raised from the dead. So that when we put our faith in you, we can have confidence that we too shall rise. Thank you for animating your love, not just living it, leaving it in theory. Thank you for loving us despite our sinfulness, our brokenness, our unworthiness. Praise you, God, that you see the depths of our hearts and you love us. I pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.